Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. And this morning we begin um, at most of a chapter that is the high watermark of the success of Jesus' public ministry. John chapter 4, Jesus' ministry with the woman at the well and the Samaritans, Sychar, Sychar, this is as good as it gets. This is the only unqualified um, reception of the Messiah. Where eventually the entire town comes to faith and they, they beg him to stay there with them. This is as good as it gets. And so we're going to be here for a bit. It's 42 verses. So even if I average 10 verses a week, which, let's face it, is optimistic, we'll be here four weeks. My, my guess is probably closer to five. And so I'd like to read the entire text, and then um, we'll focus really on the first nine verses this morning. So let's read John 4, 1 to 42. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said to him, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? 
Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, what glorious grace is this, that your Son would go to the outcasts, the rebels, the judged, the despised, and that he would reveal himself to this woman, that he would give himself to this people, that you would save, not just from Israel, but send a savior to be the one who would deliver those from the entire world. And so Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might see more of the glory of your son, his goodness, his kindness, his humility, his condescension. We might worship him more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. So in coming to this text, there is a dilemma that I faced, which is, the, the interaction with Jesus and the woman at the well, so well known by Christians, doesn't really begin till verse seven or eight. And so the, the dilemma is, do you rush through the first six verses to get to the good stuff, quote unquote, or do, do you have to slow down and deal with the backdrop? Now, given that the issue of Samaria and the Samaritans and the Jews' relationship to them is such a significant theme in the Gospels, and given that I think nowhere else in the Gospels is it more highlighted here. The geography of Samaria is referenced, this mountain or that mountain. The founding of Samaria and Jacob's well and their, their connection, John throwing in Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I, I thought, you know, if, if there's ever a time where it's worth to go deep and pause and consider who and what the Samaritans are, what the Old Testament says about it, unpack the Jewish um, animosity towards them. That's something to do this week. So this morning, we will get to, we'll just barely get to the beginning of Jesus' um, communication with the woman at the well. And I trust and hope that this study will, will both be edifying this morning, but, but also enriching as we spend a few weeks going through this. So I'll remind you where we are. Jesus went to Jerusalem for the feast. He had his encounter with Nicodemus, and then leaving Jerusalem, he went into the Judean countryside, and he was baptizing there. We, John frames that Jesus and his disciples are doing parallel ministry with John the Baptist. John the Baptist moves up further north, and Jesus and John are both baptizing. Both are having successful ministry. And John the Baptist's disciples are troubled, confused, and a little vexed by this. Because Jesus is in ascendance. He is eclipsing John. And we see John testify that this is entirely God's purpose, God's plan. He's entirely content with this role. So that's where we last saw Jesus and John the Baptist. John chapter 4 begins with Jesus moving. He's going to enter into his Galilean ministry, which is where the other Gospels start. The other Gospels start with Jesus entering into Galilee. In, in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, um, Jesus enters into Galilee. He hears that John the Baptist has been arrested, and so he moves into Galilee. So now we're actually catching up to, or about to catch up to, with the other Gospels start their accounts of his ministry. So let's read. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. 
Now, one of the things that's remarkable about this text, and by this text, I mean the the whole 42 verses, is Jesus' deity and humanity are on full display. This is one of the marks of Jesus' humanity. Jesus learns something. Even as Jesus, in this passage, demonstrates remarkable insight and knowledge he should not have, he convinces the woman he's a prophet precisely because, as she says, he knows everything about me in my past. Jesus evidences supernatural knowledge. Jesus here learns something and a few verses later gets tired and weary and sits down on the edge of a well. And so we must bear in mind that the gospels present a divine savior who is also a human savior. Um, and, And we need to keep both of those in balance. At various times in church history, one of those truths has been so emphasized as to neglect the other. And so we have a fully divine savior and a fully human savior. So Jesus learned that the Pharisees knew of his growing ministry. And this is why he leaves Judea and departs for Galilee. Leaves Judea and departs for Galilee. He he hears about this. And there's, I think, three reasons why he might do this. The first is in doing so, he avoided a direct conflict with them, with the Pharisees at this time. In John's gospel, we're going to see Jesus controls, Jesus prompts the escalation with the Pharisees. The reason why he didn't do a public miracle at the wedding at Cana was his hour was not yet. And in John's gospel, his hour is the crucifixion. It it is the passion, the suffering. It's not time for me to be crucified, he says, in effect. And if he draws attention to himself prematurely, he'll be crucified prematurely. Because, of course, it's Jesus' miracles climaxing with the miracle of the raising of Lazarus that causes and and cauterizes his enemies into saying we must put him to death or else all of Israel will go after him. And so Jesus here de-escalates. We're going to see in chapter 5 he escalates quite intentionally. He is completely, sovereignly in control of the pace of the escalation with his enemies. The crucifixion is not an accident, but Christ came for this very purpose, he'll say later, and he is sovereignly in control of the pacing of that conflict. But here, he learns that the Pharisees have learned that he is eclipsing John the Baptist. This was the very issue that troubled John's disciples. And so Jesus goes north to avoid a direct conflict with them at this time. Next time he returns to Jerusalem, possibly a year later, that's when in chapter five, he is, just turn to chapter five, I'll show you. You wanna see Jesus pick a fight? No, he he absolutely picks a fight here, quite intentionally. Remember he heals the man with a mat and he gets up and he's carrying his mat and the Pharisees find him. Um, Verse uh, 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And the reason why I say he's picking a fight here in chapter five is in chapter seven, he'll address the same issue and give a different type of answer. In chapter seven, when the crowds are confused about him, he's gonna say, hey, don't you circumcise on the eighth day, even if the eighth day is a Sabbath? And if you can circumcise someone on the eighth day, then can you really get mad at me for healing a whole man's body on the the, uh, Sabbath? Which is to say, in chapter seven, Jesus argues with the people saying, am am I really breaking the Sabbath, you think, by healing a man? Don't you get that there's a priority in the law? If Jesus gave that answer here in five, the Pharisees might like it or not like it. They might have a good debate. No one would be trying to kill him. So Jesus' answer in 517 is intentional, it's provocative, and they get it. He says about working on the Sabbath, my father is working until now, and so I am working. My dad works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. They don't misunderstand that. Verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So there's where Jesus absolutely turns up the conflict and escalates. Here he's de-escalating. He's heading up north. Second reason why he would do this. He avoided the further possibility of further polarization. We've already seen that even without the Pharisees' involvement, John's disciples are unsettled by these two ministries. John's disciples are are concerned and confused by the fact that Jesus is in ascendance. And even as John speaks to them, and John says, no, don't worry, This this is why I'm here. 
This is the joy of the best man at the bridegroom. There's a real potential for the Pharisees to try to pit Jesus' disciples and John's disciples against themselves. And so I think in part, he learns this. He doesn't want to give them that tool. I'm guessing, I'm trying to fill in the logic, but the key point here is when he learns that the Pharisees have learned the very thing that troubled John the Baptist's disciples, he, may, he moves, he moves to Galilee. He moves to Galilee. And third, we learn that even in his ministry, he avoided potential divisions among his own disciples. We get this little aside, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So Jesus is baptizing insofar as he's overseeing it. He's directing it, but he himself is not actually baptizing anyone. And this is significant because you can imagine the spiritual pride and the factions that could result from someone saying, well, who, who baptized you? Well, John the Baptist baptized me. Oh, oh, oh. I, was, I was baptized by the Messiah. Turn, turn to 1 Corinthians 1. The apostle Paul recognizes the same danger. And, and so Jesus not personally baptizing shows a concern to guard against factions and division, which the Apostle Paul is dealing with at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say they are baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So Paul is recognizing, he's trying to make it clear, if there's a large contingent of people at Corinth saying the apostle Paul baptized me, he's like, no, Paul baptized very few people. But you can see here the fodder which people could make of this for divisions and factions. Jesus doesn't baptize anyone himself to not allow anyone to say, I was baptized by the Son of God. And so in, in this move is Jesus' concern for controversy, Jesus' concern for division and factions. He's moving north. He's moving north. So Jesus leaves and departs for Galilee. He avoids a direct conflict. He avoids the possibility of fervor polarization. He avoids potential divisions among his disciples. And he returned again to Galilee in the north. I say again because in John's gospel, Jesus has already been in Galilee. The wedding at Cana was in Galilee. And now he's going back to Galilee, having come down to Jerusalem for the, the Passover, having stayed in the region of Judean wilderness to baptize, he now heads north. And then we get to verse four. Jesus passes through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. The Greek implies an imperative. It was necessary. Now it's possible that imperative is due to geography. He had to go through Samaria. Although really there are a couple routes you could take. Um, more likely, I think, he had to. This is divine necessity. Jesus' appointment and his later explanation that you need to have your eyes open to see the fields being white for harvest, to me suggests he had to. This is him being in tune with his Father's will, him being in tune with the promptings of the Spirit. It's, it's possible he just had to because that was his only route, but we know there were other routes, and so he passes through Samaria. And here's where we're going to stop for a little while and try to explain what is the deal with Samaria. Um, what, what is their backstory? Why is there such animosity with the Jews and the Samaritans? So keep your finger here in John and turn back to 1 Kings. We're going to read some text, do a little Bible study, and I trust it'll be edifying. Um, John assumes we know our Bibles. Even as he doesn't assume, we know all extra-biblical information. He's going to tell us Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans, but he does assume we know our Bibles. And, and the, the founding of Samaria and understanding its relationship is, is given to us in God's words. So turn back to 1 Kings. We're actually going to start in chapter 11, even more briefly. So if you'll remember, God promised Abraham a land, and then after slavery in Egypt, he delivers Israel 
makes a covenant with them at Sinai, and then under Joshua, there's a conquest of the land. They take possession of the land, and they enter into a kingdom. Saul is the first king, and the kingdom is united, all 12 tribes having parcels of land. The kingdom stays united for Saul, and then for David, and Solomon, and Solomon is, is unwise. He, even as he's one of the wisest men who ever lived, he, he, he follows after the gods of his many wives. I believe at the end of his life he returns in repentance, but he leads Israel astray. And he has a son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is a total punk. No, no, complete punk. He is, is a wicked man. You know, you, you, can, you can read the story. He, he gets his advisors together. And the old wise advisors say, look, if you speak peaceably and kindly to this people, they will love you. They will, they will be like flesh of your flesh and bone of your bones. They will, they will serve you. And his younger um, advisors tell him, no, 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 you need to threaten them. And he comes out and he says, you think my dad was tough? My pinky is thicker than my father's loins. My father disciplined you with thorns. I'll discipline you with scorpions. And the rest of Israel says, nah, later, and they leave and the kingdom is ripped in half, okay? This is, this is bad. I want to read in chapter 11 about Jeroboam. Now here's your first blank here. Samaria's history starts with Jeroboam's rebellion. It's actually not fair to call it Jeroboam's rebellion because he doesn't return from Egypt until the rebellion is complete, but he's the first king of the northern kingdom. And it's tragic because the Lord God reaches out to him through the prophet in chapter 11, verse 29, at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Note that, Jerusalem, centered, emphasized. Because they also have forsaken me and worshiped the Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. They have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in the sight and keeping my statutes and rules, David is, as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand, and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. Second time. And I will take you. And look at, look at his promise. Look at this grand promise to Jeroboam. I will take you and you shall reign over all your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam but Jeroboam arose, fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So the God predicts this as a judgment on Israel's unfaithfulness, which was led by Solomon. Solomon led Israel into idolatry. And sure enough, in chapter 12, the people cry out when they hear the foolish words of Rehoboam. Verse 16, what portion do we have here in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your own tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, O David. And you get the summary in verse 19. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So what will become Samaria was founded in rebellion. And even as God offered grand promises to Jeroboam, did he heed them? Did he listen? No. No, look, look, at, look at how quickly it goes into apostasy. 
uh, verse 25 of chapter 12. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then all the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So here's his dilemma. The law of Moses mandates that when the Lord God chooses a place, he says, when the place I will choose, which is why I highlighted to you in, in what God said to Jeroboam, that God makes it clear to Jeroboam, I have chosen Jerusalem. That's the place. That the men of Israel three times a year for the feast are to go to the place the Lord your God has chosen and there offer sacrifices and worship. And, and, and Jeroboam is considering, man, if, if three times a year all of my people from these 10 tribes are going to Jerusalem, you know what's going to happen over time? Their affections, their loyalties, it's going to drift back to David's son, to Rehoboam, and they will kill me. And because of that, because he did not trust what God had promised him, God had promised him, look, if you'll be faithful, you will have a dynasty. If you'll be faithful, I will build your house. So this fear of being killed can only happen if he doesn't trust and believe what God has said. And so instead, read this tragic tragedy, verse 28, so the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. We've been there, done that with Israel, haven't we? So this time I got two, so it's, you know, it's different. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, this is, this is parallel to the golden calf in Exodus. It's tragic. He set one up in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on the high places and appointed priests from among all the people who are not of the Levites. So right out of the gate, the northern kingdom, which will become Samaria, is formed from a rebellion. And a rebellion that, instead of embracing God's purpose, what God basically said is, I'm going to use you to discipline David. I will ultimately restore David. I will use you to discipline David. And if you'll be faithful to me, if you'll be obedient, I will bless you too. I'll, I'll give you a dynasty. I'll give you a kingdom. But right out of the gate, Nuh-uh, and now you've got not just rebellion, but apostasy, idolatry. And as we read through the kings of the north, there's not a single good one. In the south, there's a couple, but all of them are bad in the north. So Samaria's history starts with Jeroboam's rebellion, then move to chapter 16. We'll pick up the pace here. In chapter 16, King Omri founds the town, the fortified town of Samaria, making it the capital of the northern kingdom. So if you move to uh, 1 Kings 16, starting in verse 23, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, the way they mark the years is by sometimes the king in the south. So Asa's king in the south when Omri began to reign over Israel. And he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. He bought the hill country of Samaria from Shemer, for two talents of silver, and he fortified the city and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. So here now we get the new capital. And if you keep reading, you'll see this is where the kings are buried. And so Samaria becomes the name for the capital, but also eventually the name of the region of the kingdom. Even as the Old Testament text distinguishes, you can see how the capital, we talk about Washington says this, and what you mean is the leadership in Washington. It's the same thing here. So the next step is Omri founded Samaria as the capital city. Stay in 16, and you can see that the idolatry gets quickly linked to the capital as Ahab, as Ahab builds an altar to Baal in Baal's house in Samaria. It's just one or two verses, but 16, um, yeah, um, 16... 31 to 33, and as if it had not been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Notice the continuity. Jeroboam was wicked. Jeroboam broke faith. And so these other wicked kings are judged and referenced alongside of Jeroboam, showing the founding, from the founding onward. 
as if it had not been a light thing from the walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him, and he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So the capital city of the northern kingdom of Samaria now has a temple to a pagan god and an altar in that city. And Ahab made the Ashtaroth, look at this amazing line, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And I'm highlighting this because if you're an Israelite, this is infuriating. This is great wickedness. Understand there is in some senses much reason for the Israelites to be provoked and, and agog and absolutely broken over this wickedness. The, the, the solution is not the, the Jews thought too lowly of Samaria. Samaria and its founding is absolutely abysmal and wicked. Absolutely abysmal and wicked. Consequently, if you turn to 2 Kings 17, we can read about God's judgment of them. God's judgment of them. 2 Kings 17, 1 through 6, God takes them off the land. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea. For he sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the heart, and on the heart Habor, the river of Gozan, in the city of the Medes. So this is severe judgment, just as the book of Deuteronomy predicted. These people go from bad to worse to worse in idolatry, in apostasy, and they're judged. And their judgment is righteous and just. And then, stay in 2 Kings 17, we see the, the resettlement by the Assyrians. So the Assyrians took Samaria into captivity, and then the Assyrians resettled Samaria with many pagan peoples. And this is going to bring us finally to the final state of Samaria, the Samaria of Jesus' day, the Samaria of the Jews. This is, I guess, even worse. 2 Kings 17, 26. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you've carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria. So he brings many peoples. He brings many peoples to resettle in the area, along with the stragglers of Israel. So you've got the old, the weak, the lame, the people who weren't worth taken off the land, the nobodies and the nothings. And then we see all the different peoples that he brings in. Um, in fact, go back to 24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sephvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in the cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions against them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places. And the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. The men of Kut made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nizhaz and Tarzak. Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire of Adramelech. And Adramelech, the gods of the Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord 
and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. And so they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from whom they had been carried away. This is, this is the terrible final state. In some sense, there is some reverence for the Lord God. There's some knowledge of him. And yet it's mixed and syncretized with all this pagan religion. The, the technical term is henotheism. Many gods with the thought that there's one big god, henotheism. And so the Israelites are practicing all sorts of rank. Well, these Samaritans have mixed together the worship of Yahweh, the Lord, with the worship of all these pagan gods. And they're trying to do it all. It's, it's complete syncretism, idolatry. They're half-breeds. They're judged. They, 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 they have an apostate religion. In some sense, it's worse because they're still trying to hold to the Old Testament. What, what it appears, what Jeroboam did is he kept the books of Moses because the books of Moses don't name where the place is. So the books of Moses just talk about there'll be a place the Lord your God names. And we saw the Lord make it clear. I've, I've chosen Jerusalem. But if you just stop there, then nothing necessarily contradicts your worship up north in Samaria. So they held on to the first five books of the Bible. They held on to Moses and the promises therein. And they were familiar with them. We'll see even the woman at the well was familiar with them. But, but they'd been judged. They'd rebelled. They were, were worshiping pagan gods. And so after Israel, after Judah, sorry, is judged and taken by Babylon and returns, the Samaritans initially want to, you don't need to turn here, but in, in Nehemiah, we read about how the, the, the Samaritans wanted, or in Ezra actually, in Ezra 1, 4, when the, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returning exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build for you, for we worship your God as you do. So, so the people in the surrounding areas, the Samaritans come and they say, hey, let's, we'll help because we worship the same God you do. No, 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 they don't. And Zerubbabel said, um, you have nothing to do with us in building a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And so when they get rebuffed, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. So the Samaritans initially say, hey, we're all worshiping the same God. We got Moses, Let's, we'll help you out. And when they get turned away, then they hinder the process. So if, if you're a Jew living in Jesus' day, these are the wicked people who've never had a good king who right out of the gate made an alternate site of worship, golden calves, set up an alternate city, and they said worst king after worst king after worst king till you get to Ahab who did more than all the kings before him, and then God judges them, and the remnants, the scraps of these people intermarry with the pagans, and they worship their pagan gods, and yet they still try to hold fast to some version of Moses, and they try to do it both. They try to work, worship Chemosh and hold to the law of Moses. And then when God's chosen people, I'm putting it in the perspective of the Jews, when the good guys return to the land, they try to thwart and hinder the building of the temple. You, you can start to get a gist of why the Israelites despised and hated these people. They're apostates, they're pagans, they're half-bloods. And they, they interfered with the true worship. They interfered with the building of the temple. They, they hindered them. They've been judged by God. All these reasons the Jews despised the Samaritans. And, and in their shoes, I just want to pause and have you consider, you, you probably feel roughly the same way. Consider the peoples that you think are working against your country, the, the tra traitors working against the state. Or consider the apostate mainstream religion claiming we worship the same God you do, but supporting all sorts of terrible programs and abortion and other things. And, and you get provoked by it. I do. How, how dare you take the name of my Lord and, and support the killing of children? It's an abomination. It's no different from those who offered their kids up to Chemosh, to fire. And you can see the, the struggle and the 
conflict. But the point I'm making is this. It's not that the Jews of Jesus' day thought too lowly of the Samaritans. I don't think, that the solution is not resolved by thinking the Jews thought the Samaritans were too bad. I, in some sense, I don't think you could think they were bad enough. The solution of what we're about to see lies in the fact that Nicodemus thinks he's too good. The solution is the Jews are just as bad in their own way. The Jews, that's the whole point of the baptism of repentance that John the Baptist sent. I'm no better than a Gentile. I need proselyte washing. So the, the, the resolution here is not these poor people are not as bad as the Jews thought. The resolution is the righteous, self-righteous religious people are far worse than they think. That's, that's the resolution of the tension. Jesus is going to deal with her sin. Jesus is going to tell her, you worship what you don't know. He's going to make it clear. Salvation is of the Jews. In all those sense, the Samaritans were wrong. Their alternate place of worship is wrong. Their knowledge of God, wrong. What we're to be amazed by is that in spite of all that evil, in spite of all that corruption and apostasy, our Lord has compassion and kindness for this woman. That's what's so amazing. You point G here, and you fill in the last blank. And finally, they built a rival temple at Mount Gerizim. Finally, they built a rival temple at Mount Gerizim. Um, we know that the town of Sychar is located at the foot of Mount Ebal. Gerizim's right across, and when the woman references this mountain, she's, she's looking right at Mount Gerizim. And so they, they have an alternate temple. Ultimately, when, when Israel Zerubbabel said, no, you can't help us build our temple. They could build their own temple then, so we'll see. And that's, that's the stage being set. This is why the Jews despised them so. Um, this is why the Jews despised them so. So that's the his historic backdrop. It's rich. This is a people that have never had a good day. They've never had a moment where they're faithful. From their founding, it's apostasy, faithlessness, idolatry, wickedness, judgment, more wickedness, greater wickedness, opposing God's people building the temple. These are just bad guys through and through in the text. They never have a good moment. Even though God offers kindness and goodness to Jeroboam, he rejects it. Okay, that's the backdrop. Point three, Jesus rests at Jacob's well near Sychar. Jesus rests at Jacob's well near Sychar. This is one of the places in the Bible where actually we're pretty confident we know exactly where it's located. Um, this would be the modern village of Askar next to Mount Ebal and Gerizim. You'll remember Mount Ebal and Gerizim are the two mountaintops in Deuteronomy where the people gather on both of them. They shout across the valley in between the blessing and the curse. Historic mountains in, in Deuteronomy and in the Old Testament. This, even though this is Samaria, this is part of the Holy Land. This is the land God gave to um, Abraham and his sons. In fact, we read that Jacob's well is there. This is uh, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And again, this is all familiar geography. And this, again, is the mark of real history. This, this is a real place. And you can read in, in Genesis about how Jacob buys this land. And in Genesis 48, um, he, then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I've given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites and my, with my sword and my bow. That's, that's the bequeathing of this land. And that's its backdrop. Now notice, Jesus has been traveling, as best as we can tell, 20, 40 miles from the wilderness of Judea up to here, and he's tired. He's, he's walking on foot, and again, the humanity of Jesus is highlighted. He grows weary. And, and so, so put the contrast up. He's been walking all day. It's the heat of the day. It's the, it's the sixth hour, noon, high noon, and he is wiped out. He is exhausted, and he stays at the well. The disciples go into... Sychar to buy food. He's tired. He's been walking. He knows the history of Samaria, which makes what he's about to do next all the more startling and remarkable. And we're just going to touch this briefly. We're just going to crack the surface of his interaction with the woman at the well. We're really going to dive into it next week. But I want to just start with Jesus asks a Samaritan woman for a drink. Jesus asks a Samaritan woman for a drink. Let's just read verses 7, 8, and 9, and we'll just dip our toe in here. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaria, the Samaritans. And what we're about to see here is the contrast that even as bad as the Samaritans are, this woman, socially speaking, is on the lowest rung of their very low ladder. We're about to find out she's, she's likely, almost certainly, an adulteress. She's been married to five men, and she's living with her sixth. It's conceivable, I suppose, she's the innocent party in all five divorces, but since she's not living morally now, far more likely is at least one or two of those marriages ended with her adultery. She's an immoral woman, likely an adulteress. She's a pariah. You don't come to the well in the heat of the day unless you want to avoid other people. We know, and it just stands to reason, that if you've got to go to a well, if you're in a culture where you go to the well regularly, go in the morning, go in the evening when the sun's not on its brightest. She comes out at high noon. And so many have guessed and suggest, likely, in the heat of the day, to avoid others. We know enough about this culture and these people to know how they view such women. And again, the, the, the resolution here isn't to say she's not as bad as you might think. No, she, she's been married to five guys. And the law of Moses speaks to this. It's, they should know about the laws for marriage. No, she, she's an immoral woman. We, we don't solve this by making her better than we think she is. She's every bit as bad as the Jews likely would have thought. The solution comes in Jesus is better, and we are worse than we tend to think. Um, and I just want to pause and note that she is a stark contrast to Nicodemus. John puts these stories chapter to chapter. Nicodemus has every privilege. He's male, he's not female. He's a teacher of Israel. He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the people. In his day, he is in the most privileged and honored spot in his society. He's male, he's a Pharisee, he's the teacher in Israel, he's a ruler of the Jews. This woman is a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's an adulteress, almost certainly, divorced five times and living with her current man because he won't even marry her. He couldn't have starker contrast. In further contrast, Nicodemus comes to Jesus seeking him out. This woman isn't seeking Jesus out. In fact, when Jesus brings up her marriage situation, she changes the topic rather quickly. Again, it's not that this is a seeker. And no, if anyone's a seeker, Nicodemus was the seeker. This woman isn't seeking Jesus. The contrast couldn't be greater, and yet Jesus' tone, Jesus' approach, is so different from Nicodemus. Because as we saw, Nicodemus' trouble was he did not accept, he did not own, that he was as bad as he was. And so Jesus has to hammer into him, you need God to do a work in your heart that you cannot make happen because you otherwise will never see, will never enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thought far too highly of himself. And so Jesus takes him head on. He knows what's in man. He knows what Nicodemus needs to hear. Truly, truly, I say to you, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And he knows what this woman needs. And so Jesus doesn't have a one-size-fits-all approach to evangelism. But just note, note the humility, the grace, and the kindness of Jesus as he reaches out and speaks to this woman. The contrast with Nicodemus. We see her shock. She is shocked that Jesus speaks to her. He's shocked that Jesus speaks to her. He says to her, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She knows. She knows what the Jews think of her. She knows what the Jews think of the Samaritans in general. And so she's shocked that Jesus would speak to her. The disciples are shocked when they come back, except they at least have the good sense not to say anything, right? No one asked him anything, but well, good, what's going on here? So Jesus, in talking to her, is breaking all sorts of social mores, all sorts of social mores. The disciples are purely shocked at the mores of him talking to a Samaritan and him talking to a woman. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. If they knew the truth about her, they'd be even more shocked. She's certainly surprised. And so I just want to pause before we dive into their dialogue and just consider Jesus' love. Here, The blank here, 
Um, she knows that the Jews despise the Samaritans in general. We know that in John. Later, they're going to say to Jesus, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? And then John tells us to make it explicit, Jews do not interact with Samaritans. I mean, this point is made clearly. What Jesus is doing breaks social codes, breaks mores. He highlights this. Jesus is breaking these traditions, breaking these social patterns because, point C, Jesus abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. I think what we're to see is not this poor woman's better than we think. She's probably a nice girl at heart. No, 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 no. Grant everything. She's a Samaritan. She's not worshiping God properly. Jesus makes that you worship what you don't know. No, no, no. She's probably more likely to recognize her guilt and her bankruptcy. But Jesus is a savior for broken, defiled, corrupt, rebellious, idolatrous sinners just like you and me. And he highlights that here. In, in one sense, Nicodemus is no better than her. And so Jesus, as an act of his love and his condescension and his meekness and his humility, reaches out and crosses the aisle, as it were, and speaks to this one who, if you think of um, India's culture, the untouchables, it's not far off because his eye is on his father's will. God sent his son into the world to save sinners, not to find the good guys and save them. And that point is made no more clearly than here. Here, the outcast of the outcasts, the despised of the despised. Jesus initiates the conversation. Jesus will see, turns it towards spiritual reality. She doesn't understand him. She gets confused. Where's this living water? Where's your ladle? And he, he bears with her. And then when she tries to dodge, he asks her about her husband. She says, I have no husband. He says, well, yeah, you've had five, but the one you have now isn't. She says, speaking of husbands, which mountain should we worship on? She changes the topic, right? And Jesus doggedly pursues I think we're to marvel at his love, his kindness, and he's not concerned with these social mores. He's come to seek and save the lost, and that includes her. And the good news for us, and we're gonna, we are going to sing our closing song, is that the gospel is not you're better than you think you are. You're, you and I are far, far worse than we think we are. There's a great Charles Spurgeon quote. If someone thinks ill of you, don't hold it against them. They probably still think far, far, far too highly of you. The gospel is not, you've got limitless potential and you're really a diamond in the rough because God wouldn't send his son to die for trash. The gospel is, we have offended a holy God. We are cosmic rebels, guilty of treason. That our thoughts and our intentions war with him, that we are no better than this woman here. And yet, and yet, God's mercy and grace abounds, super abounds, and reaches to us. This is good news. You, you cannot be too corrupt, too filthy, too compromised, too broken, too sinful for this Savior. Many people are too righteous for him and too good. And we see that here. Marvel at our Savior's grace and mercy. Marvel at the mercy of God revel in the truth, not that you're better than you think you are, but that he and his goodness and his kindness is far greater than we would imagine or think. That we'll be joining in the chorus of praise with this woman in glory. Amen. Please, please stand. I'm going to call the worship team up as we sing our closing song.